Father in heaven, I want to ask for your Holy Spirit to speak through me. The subject we're talking about today is huge in its importance, core to the good news, the gospel. Uh, But we get it mixed up a lot of times. And so I just pray that you would give us your wisdom and that we would be understanding your word, not just our own ideas or our own um, philosophies. Let it be your word that speaks today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1992, Juan Rivera was accused of a crime that he did not commit. There was blood on his shoes from the poor little girl who was murdered. And with that and, and the fact that he was nearby, he lived in, uh, near the house where she was killed in, um, he was convicted. In fact, he was convicted three times, um, even though DNA testing showed that his DNA wasn't really in the mix later on, several years after he was put in prison. They still... Um, on, on a retrial, they put him in prison again. And in a third retrial, they convicted him again. He finally was exonerated. And in the end, it was discovered that his shoes, they weren't even made until a couple years after the crime happened. The police had put the little girl's blood on his shoes because they wanted a conviction. Wrongly convicted. There's something about a wrongful conviction that makes me angry. Does it make you mad when somebody is done wrong? It should. It should make us rise up a bit because when justice is unjust, then a society is hopeless. But what if the accusation is accurate? What if the evidence is true? And what if the sentence for the crime is just? Is there any hope then? I grew up a kid, uh, as a kid in Kentucky, and my family were, they were really strong, uh, involved members of the local church, a small little church there in Powderly, Kentucky. Uh, if you go there now, I, I don't know how many members were, are attending now, but in 2007, when I last attended, there was um, 11 people, including me and my wife. Um, so it was a tiny little place. Um, at the time I was, when I was a kid, there was maybe 35 or 40, and we had a, a few little kids, and we'd run around and and uh, enjoy time together. But, but our church, the members, my friends, even myself, we were kind of a church that was living in fear. We were living in fear uh, that our name might come up in the investigative judgment and that, that um, our probation would be closed at any minute. We lived in fear that uh, we might be found without a mediator at the close of probation We feared the final judgment on the world. We feared that, well, we hesitated, I should say, when when people asked us, are you saved? We would be like, well, I think so. I I hope so. Praying that I will be, you know, there's these just not quite sure because we didn't want to be maybe proud or, or assume something that we didn't know for sure ourselves. We were a church in fear of God and in fear of His judgment. And maybe my church wasn't the only one that experienced that in the 80s and 90s, but it seems like there's a a question around this subject of judgment, And, and it's really a question about how we can be saved. It's a question about the gospel itself. And so I want to explore this subject and figure out what is this judgment about? 
Some Christians look at the judgment and they get around any fear of the judgment by saying, well, the, the, the God's people won't be judged. It's the wicked who are judged. God's people get away from that. And, and we've come up with all kinds of interesting interpretations of prophecy to try to make that work. Other Christians get around it by saying that God, He determines beforehand who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. So as long as you're in church and have some evidence of being a Christian, you're good. You, you can be confident that you're going to pass through the judgment unscathed. And so they try to figure out some way around the judgment. But there are some really cool things about judgment in the Bible. And it's, it's clear that God's people will be judged. The Bible even says that judgment begins in the house of God. It's clear that God also gives us some choice. He has predetermined that every one of us have the opportunity for salvation, but He gives us the opportunity for loving Him back. You can't have love if you don't have choice. And so God gives us an opportunity to choose, which means that both of those philosophies in Christianity, they don't hit the mark. And, and that means we have to face this idea of judgment and figure out what it is. We face a God who in Malachi chapter 3 verse 5 says, I will put you on trial. Does that sound good? I am eager to witness against. And then he starts to describe some of us. All the sorcerers and adulterers and liars, I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Is there any good news in this judgment? In the early history of our church, some good people that were diligent Bible students and really trying to figure out what is God saying, they began exploring these, this subject from Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, and they, they came to the conclusion that Jesus was coming in 1844 because they read this verse that says, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And then they, they assumed that the cleansing of the sanctuary was by fire and that the sanctuary itself was the earth. And well, what better time than the Bible's description of Jesus' second coming, where the earth would be cleansed with fire. So it must be that Jesus is coming in 1844, they concluded. But that, of course, was wrong. And so they took seriously the angel's uh, guidance to, to John when in Revelation 10, 11, he said, prophesy again, prophesy again. So they went back and they looked at the prophecy and they said, what does this really mean? And, and what they, they found was that when they compared Daniel and this whole sanctuary idea with Hebrews, they found that Paul describes the earthly sanctuary as being built as a copy or a shadow of a heavenly sanctuary. And they said, well, if the earthly sanctuary is cleansed on the Day of Atonement once a year, then maybe this 1844 thing is about some cleansing of a heavenly sanctuary, that there is some, a, a type on earth and the real in heaven. Now, if you've been studying the Sabbath school lesson, you're going through Daniel chapter um, 9 recently, and so you've discovered the connection between the judgment in Daniel 7 and the sanctuary in Daniel 8 and the, the time prophecy that begins in 457 AD and ends in 1844 from Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks. So we're not going to dive into all of the, the details and nuances of a prophecy about this. Instead, I want to take you on a brief sketch of the sanctuary's feasts. And the reason I'm doing this is because when we look at the daily things that happen inside the sanctuary, we're looking at our interaction with God. 
I come to the door of the sanctuary, I bring my offering, I confess my sin, this, the, the offering is, is uh, sacrificed and, and burnt on the, the altar, and then, then it, the blood is taken into the holy place and sprinkled on the veil. That happens. That's my sin. That's my part. But the feasts describe God's part. God has a big plan, a big picture plan to solve the problem of evil in the world, and the feasts tell us that story. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. And I think that we're going to discover the heart of the gospel in one of those books that you've probably fallen asleep reading. Are you ready? Leviticus chapter 23. I have a diagram on the screen that I'm going to leave up there. You might want to get your cell phone out and take a picture of it if you feel like it. Um, we're going to kind of walk through this, and, and this diagram shows you a few things. It shows you what's happening um, it shows you its connection to the sanctuary. It shows you how it's connected to Christ. And it also shows you where Christ is in the different phases of this fulfillment of these feasts. In, uh, the first feast is found in Pro, uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4. This feast is the feast of unleavened, I'm sorry, the, the Passover feast. And, and this is the reminder. Every year, the Israelites are supposed to remember that God delivered them from Egypt. And, and they're supposed to remember that the lamb is the substitute. They put the blood of the lamb on that doorposts. And, and, and not only are they looking at the lamb as the substitute, but they're also remembering what's happening on a regular basis when they go to the temple and they sacrifice the lamb. So this lamb is supposed to remind them of that sacrifice and the big picture plan of God dealing with sin. But not only that, it points us forward to the Messiah. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ is our Passover. The second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You can find that in verse 6 of Leviticus 23. And this feast is tied to a grain offering that's brought whenever the, the, you have a harvest, you'll bring a grain offering to the Lord. And, uh, and it's also tied to the table of showbread, where unleavened bread is renewed every single week in the sanctuary uh, holy place there. And that's supposed to remind us, or rather point us forward to what Jesus did when at the Last Supper, He broke bread and He said, this is my body. And the next day, His body was broken on the cross. It's supposed to remind us of Jesus and John 6:35 Jesus tells us I am the bread of life he who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst Jesus is that perfect unleavened bread from the feast of unleavened bread and then in verse 9 we find the third feast the first fruits and the first fruits is a joyful celebration for the harvest and it's it's looking to Jesus and looking to God as the provider not Baal as the one who's supposed to bring the harvest but but God is the one who brings the harvest and it was also um, supposed to be celebrated right immediately following the the Passover ser- uh, service and and then in in 1 Corinthians 15:20 Paul helps us understand that Jesus resurrection the, the resurrection from the dead is a first fruit. He says, now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The harvest that we have every year, the first fruit feast was supposed to, to make us think Jesus is going to come back to life. The Messiah is going to be risen from the dead. And that is a promise that you and I can have the resurrection too. These first three feasts 
happen during Jesus' earthly ministry while He is on earth. It's pointing to all these different things that Jesus did while He was here, but then He was raised back to heaven, and what happens then? Well, the next feast is the Feast of Pentecost, and Pentecost is named after a time frame, 49 days, seven weeks of seven days plus one. So, 50 days after the first fruits feast, they're supposed to come back from all around Israel and hang out, and, and what are they supposed to do? It's, they're, they're not really, it's not necessarily a um, first fruits kind of thing or an unleavened bread thing. It's just kind of, you're supposed to come back and enjoy each other's company and go to the temple and offer sacrifice or whatever. But I, I, I think that it's no coincidence that 50 days after um, the, the um, first fruits, after Jesus was raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And people from all over Judah are able to hear the gospel message because the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's, uh, on the disciples on that day. It was a prophecy of the Holy Spirit. And so this feast is closely tied to the candelabra. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But he says that the, the lamp, the oil in that lamp is the Holy Spirit. So, in Acts 2, we read about this whole story. 120 followers of Jesus are in this large room praying. The Holy Spirit comes down like fire. They go out and they preach. The, the world gets a message of the gospel through Jesus. Now, if you want to explore some of those events in Acts 2, I'd like to encourage you to look in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and you'll find what happens with Jesus in that same time period. Because Jesus goes to heaven, and He's no longer on earth. And so He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to send you a comforter. And, and He's supposed to lead us into all truth and give us the spiritual gifts that are necessary for reaching the world with the gospel. Jesus, He's not on earth anymore in this feast. He's in heaven. And Revelation 4 and 5 tells that story of Jesus coming into the courtroom of heaven as the Lamb who was slain. And the angels sing this amazing song, worthy are you to take this mysterious scroll that has these seven seals and to open it because you are the lamb who was slain. It's it's a beautiful story. Read Revelation 4 and 5. You'll find out some great stuff about that. The next feast is found in verse 23 of Leviticus 23, and this is the feast of trumpets. The feast of trumpets was a call to solemn rest. It happens 10 days before the Day of Atonement, and, and it is a time, the Bible says, to aff- afflict your souls. This does not mean that you are supposed to take whips and whip your back. <laughs> it's, it's different than that. It's, it's you looking, the, the, the Israelites, maybe uh, cleaning their home was part of it, cleaning their bodies, um, putting away things that they knew were not God's ideal, and, and, to, and to bow in prayer before God and to spend some time in spiritual, um, dedicated uh, renewal. And, and the Feast of Trumpets is closely connected to the work of the altar of burnt offering in the holy place. The altar of burnt offering represents the, the smoke rising as the prayers of the saints going before the throne of God. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? It says that He is our mediator and that He ever lives to make intercession, to pray for us. Did you ever think about that? Jesus is praying for you. 
That's a neat thought. Jesus is praying for you by name. He is interceding for you. And, and then it also points forward to something that would happen. A preparatory period just before the, the Day of Atonement in heaven. Not the earthly Day of Atonement that happened every year, but the one-time Day of Atonement that happens in heaven. And you can find in the 1830s a, a group of people, not just William Miller, but a bunch of people that were, were focusing on Daniel and trying to figure out what was going on. And so they start to be sharing this message of warning. And in 1834... Ten years, I don't know that the ten days of the, the Feast of Trumpets was meant to be taken as prophetic day for a year, but it's kind of fun. Ten years before the 1844 fulfillment, in 1834, William Miller published a 64-page paper that said, look what's happening, this is what Daniel is saying. And it was, it was a message that was meant to draw people's attention to judgment, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, we read this uh, in the Bible, a, pro- a prophecy of what was happening in the 1830s. And it says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This is like John the Baptist, right before Jesus is announced in his ministry, and John the Baptist is saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then he points to Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here, 10 years before the Day of Atonement, the world is saying, give glory to God, the hour of His judgment has come. And you know what? It it doesn't sound like a terrible thing. It says, give glory to Him, not be afraid of Him. That's an interesting way. It does say fear God, but there's something different about that kind of fear. It's be in awe of God. And that's a little different than being afraid of God. Solemn, soul-searching and judgment don't necessarily sound pleasant. So what is it about this that, that we should glorify God for? Why should we give glory to God because of judgment? Well, the next feast, we're going to come back to that question. The next feast is the, the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is the second to last feast in Israel's yearly cycle. And it was a special time of, for this religious life because it was the time when any unknown sin, or unconfessed sin, was brought to the, the sanctuary and confessed uh, by the priests on, on the, the, the goat, and the goat was, was sacrificed. The blood was taken not to the, the veil but it was taken behind the veil into the most holy place. The only time in the entire year at any time that they were allowed to go before the, the mercy seat of God. And, and this ceremony is closely tied to that, that uh, piece of furniture in the most holy place, the Ark of the Testament or Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant has two really important things. Inside, it has the basis on which you and I would be judged. And it's clear you have no place in heaven unless you have perfectly fulfilled the law of God. The law is the standard by which we are judged, and it is a high standard of love, loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And the Bible says that we fall short of God's glory. We fall short of God's commands. And the other part of that is the mercy seat. 
And the mercy seat points us to what Jesus would do, not just at the cross, but also in heaven on our behalf, standing in our place to provide the opportunity of salvation, an opportunity we would never otherwise have if God did not give us mercy. But there's something about this feast. It talks about a cleansing of the sanctuary. The first thing that, that we think about when it's cleansing is that, that our sin through the blood is sprinkled in the sanctuary. So there's something about our sin that's tied to this cleansing. Um, but what else is polluting the sanctuary? There's something else in Daniel chapter 7 that is polluting the sanctuary. Maybe not in heaven, but it's polluting the understanding of God's plan of salvation in the minds of God's people a blasphemous, false teaching that Satan has promoted through what Daniel 7 describes as the little horn. Look at Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, and you'll see a little bit about this. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garments were white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before, from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. This is, this is a courtroom scene. This is a story of judgment. But it's, it wasn't just um, some pompous words about God that were being introduced that we're going to find in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21. But there's something else that's happening. It says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. So the little, little horn, he blasphemes God and judgment comes down. But he doesn't just blaspheme God, he makes war with the saints. And so this judgment scene, it's not just me standing before the throne of God, being exposed for all of the sinfulness that I am, but it's me in court asking God, where's justice when evil is done in my world? What happens to the people that perpetrate evil? And, and so the answer in verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made, and what's the word? In favor of the saints. Amen. Judgment is made on my behalf is the idea. This little horn blasphemes God and persecutes God's people. And Daniel 8 continues to describe it. And, and it connects the blasphemy of the little horn with the sanctuary by saying, By him, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. In verse 12 of chapter 8, An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground. And in verse 13, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? How long will you allow your sanctuary to be blasphemed, God? How long will you allow God's people to be run over by this evil power that is controlled by Satan? And the answer is in verse 14, where he says, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The clear connection here is that the sanctuary is being polluted by the little horn's blasphemy. It's being trampled down when it persecutes the saints. And so from Daniel, we get this picture that the, the process of judgment includes both removing the stain of my sin from the sanctuary and from my heart, as well as resolving the problem of the false, deceptive teachings about God's gospel and His sanctuary. Some people are worried about the judgment, and they should be worried if their intention is to be on the side of the little horn and Satan. 
But Daniel 7.22 makes it clear that if we are on God's side, if we want to be with Christ, then we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be worried because judgment is made how? In favor of the saints. This is not a judgment that we should be afraid of. This is a judgment that we should be looking forward to. This is a judgment that we can get to and say, praise God, give glory to his name because he is judging righteously. But the question still comes, what if the judgment about me is true? What if the evidence is real? And what if the, the, the penalty is, is just and right? What hope do I have? Well, the next feast, we're going to get to the answer to that question in a moment. The next feast is the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 23 of Leviticus and verse 33. And this is the the last feast of the yearly calendar. It happens immediately following the Day of Atonement. And it's a time for celebration and gathering together. They build build these tents out of of, um, new young branches. It's a a beautiful ceremony. It's like camp meeting. Now, some of you might, might like camp meetings, some of you might not, I don't know. But I would encourage you, go. Even if you don't like the speakers, go. Because it's a time for fellowship and encouragement and spending time together. And it's really something that reminds us of what God is planning to do. Jesus was thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and I should say this, there is nothing in the sanctuary, no article of furniture, no process in the sanctuary that connects to the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason is because at the Day of Atonement, the sanctuary is done. Salvation is accomplished. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the promise of heaven. Jesus, looking at this feast, said in John 14, 1 through 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is planning on us dwelling with him in heaven. He's planning on us eating a a fantastic feast in his presence, a feast that he has made for us. And, And the Bible describes this feast, this dwelling in heaven, in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, and it describes it as a thousand years, a thousand years with God. And there's something about the judgment that's still continuing because the problem with sin has not yet been resolved at Jesus' second coming and the resurrection of the righteous because there's still a judgment on evil that has to happen. But, but this time of tabernacles is a time for God's people. And it's a time when we can spend with God a time that we can spend with each other and rejoice. So what is this good news? I said that there's good news. I asked the question, what good news is there? But but we need to figure out, what is the good news in this judgment? When my case comes before the heavenly court, there's going to be no doubt that I'm a sinner. There's going to be no doubt that the evidence against me is real. There's going to be no doubt that the real and logical conclusion for my case is that I should be separated from God for eternity. And that's the truth about you too. First of all, I'm going to tell you the judgment is good news because I'm not the only one in the courtroom. This is not a case between me and God. This is a case between me and Satan. Satan is the accuser of the, of the brethren, but he's also being accused. 
He's also standing trial for all that he has done. And yes, my name comes up during his trial. But you know what happens in this heavenly courtroom scene? In order to find out, you need to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. And Zechariah takes us into heaven. It's the only place in the Bible where we see a human judged before God in heaven. And this is Joshua, the high priest who's serving at the time of Zechariah in Israel. And Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the throne of God. And it says that he's standing in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And whenever you see that, that phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Bible, that's a clue that you're seeing the name of Jesus before he had the name Jesus. The angel of the Lord is always a divine being that accepts worship and that brings this truth of God. And in this case, the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, is standing before Joshua. And there's also somebody else there. There's the accuser, and he, he states it clearly, the accuser, Satan. There's no doubt about who's standing in this courtroom. It's Joshua, it's Jesus, and it's Satan standing before the throne of God. Satan is making accusations against Joshua, and we know that Joshua is guilty because in verse 3, it says, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And throughout the Bible, we find the, the idea of filthy garments being connected to sin. Isaiah tells us that even our righteousness, our attempts at doing good are filthy rags. And so Joshua, standing there in his high priestly role, he falls short of the glory of God. He's in rags. He's guilty of all that Satan accuses him of. But the next verse reveals good news. In four, verses 4 and 5, it says, The angel, that's Jesus, said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. I just, I just want to say something just to make sure you understand. When I say the angel is Jesus, I'm not saying that Jesus is an angel. I'm saying that that phrase, angel of the Lord, is a divine statement. That's a name only given to a divine being. Other angels are not divine, but Jesus in this case is. So this angel, Jesus, says to, to those around, behold, I've taken um, or removed the filthy garments from him. And then the angel Jesus says to Joshua, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. That's uh, Zechariah. And, and so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Jesus stayed round. The symbol of removing the clothes and putting on God's own garments is an illustration of removing our guilt of sin. And it's also an illustration of putting on these garments of righteousness made by God's own hands. In Revelation 3, there's a church that's full of pride. They think that they've got everything going for them. And I just want to say that that's us. If you don't think that that's you, then you're full of pride too. And you need to, you need to be humbled by this message of Revelation chapter 3. The Laodicean church is you and me. And we face the same problem that is described by this church. But it, it, it's a church that they think that they've got it going. And they, they're clothed with good things, rich ro robes and stuff. They've got gold and they've got precious things. And, and they're rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing, Revelation says. But then in verse 18... God has counseled them that they are not clothed. In fact, they're naked. They got nothing going for them. Not even attempted righteousness is on their side that looks like filthy rags. They've got nothing on. They're exposed. And I kind of feel that way in the judgment, don't you? 
and the idea of judgment, when, I'm, when my sins are exposed, I feel exposed. And that's why we feel afraid of the judgment. But here, in verse 18, Jesus counsels them, buy from me gold refined by the fire so that, that you may be rich, and white raiment so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness and they may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Well, how do we buy from God? Is there any price that we could pay to get Christ's righteousness? Isaiah 55 tells us, no, there's not. But he says, come, buy from me without money and without price because Christ has paid the debt for us. God's solution to the problem of sin is in the judgment is that Christ himself stands on my behalf and he faces that true accusation called out against me. And in the most eloquent words the universe has ever or will ever hear, he says, I have taken his place. My sacrifice is counted towards his life and my righteousness is counted on his record. And in that moment, in the judgment, Christ's blood washes the record of my sin in the book of life, and His righteousness is put there in my place. The only reason I have any good news in the judgment is because my advocate is my Savior and Redeemer, and He is my righteous friend. So what do I need to do to get this righteousness, to, be, to have good news in the judgment? Well, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us the most simple beginning of this process. And it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's just that simple. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness when we confess. The humble admit, admitting I have done wrong. Like the publican kneeling there beside the Pharisee. The Pharisee's like, oh, so glad that I'm not like this guy, God. And the, and the publican, he's kneeling there, beating his chest and saying, he's ignoring the Pharisee. He could care less about the Pharisee. He's beating his chest, realizing I'm a sinner. And he comes to God and he says, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. That's confession. When we say, I recognize I have nothing to give you, God. Please be merciful to me. And he says, I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, that's nice. So you should be perfect after that, right? What happens if you sin again? Well, in, in, uh, there's a couple verses I want to tell you. I'm not going to put them on the screen, but if you want to write them down, James chapter 4, verse 8, describes something similar to 1 John 1, 9. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul says that, that um, Paul is certain that God, who began a good work in you, will continue his work until it is finally finished at the day when Jesus Christ returns. Jesus makes himself responsible for our salvation when we come to him, humbly like that publican saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. He makes himself responsible for the results of our salvation. Um, but then Jesus, he, makes it, he says it like this. He says, I give them eternal life that they will never perish, and no one can take them out of my hands. There is a confidence that we can have in Christ's work in saving us. But, but then the question is, what happens if we sin again? What happens if we fail and continue to fall short of God's glory? And the answer is, is in 1 John chapter 2, almost the next verse after 1 John 1, 9. John says, my little children... 
He's like the, the, the gentle father that's trying to remind us of some basic truth that we should really grasp already. My little children, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Is the goal that we just keep sinning? No. The goal is that God transforms our hearts and we cease to sin. But, but then he adds this word, if anyone does sin. And, and the English translation never gets it quite right here because English, it's not as nuanced as Greek. The Greek actually says, if anyone sins with the expectation that they will. Like that's, that's the, the Greek meaning, if and when. It's kind of like if slash when, but we don't really do that well in English translation. So if anyone sins, when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And since we have an advocate with, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, what should we do? Just to circle back to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because our righteous advocate pleads his own blood in our judgment. In the great courtroom of heaven, before the throne of God, when your case is called and you are accused of sin, Jesus himself stands up as your advocate, your redeemer, and your righteousness. I'd like you to listen to a song. And pardon me, I'm not a, I'm not a fantastic musician. You already know this about me, so uh, you won't be surprised. If you know this song, then I encourage you to sing along. It's called Before the Throne of God Above, and it is this, the entire story of judgment is in these verses. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Our God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One in himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ
Christ my Savior and my God. One in himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. Let's, let's sing together. Stand and let's sing together our closing hymn.